Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Monuments and music are in our lineup today. Students interested in music careers can learn from industry leaders in a virtual education program that's tuition-free. It's sort of an online internship experience called Downtown Summer School, and we'll hear more about it later this hour. Live music with safe social distancing is coming to Woodstock this Saturday. Jazz cellist, singer-songwriter Shauna Tucker will tell us about her special sound. Chamber Soul. First, a serious look at local monuments. As our reckoning with racial injustice continues on the world stage, history is most vividly in the present. Removing statues and renaming streets are beyond symbolic gestures. It's confronting the past with respect for the present and future. Timothy Crimmins is Georgia State University Professor Emeritus of History. He was chair of the Commission on the Preservation of the Georgia Capitol and co-author of Democracy Restored, A History of the Georgia State Capitol. Professor Crimmins joins us now via Zoom. Tim, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure being here with you. You are a leading figure in the areas of urban history and historic preservation. Is there a difference between a memorial and a monument? Uh, No, I think of them as uh, being one of the same and what you have are an outburst of uh, public sentiment uh, that leads to the effort to raise the money to create a memorial or a monument. And sometimes they're undertaken by government, sometimes by uh, private groups. And so what you see then is that they are dotted around the landscape of American and uh, world cities as a mark of uh, events and uh, individuals that have been important in the past. And so if you think of Trafalgar Gate in London or the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, you know, these are great governmental monuments uh, of you know, grand events. And in Washington, D.C., it's a city of monuments. And so every city has a variety of monuments that have been created over time as a way of marking people on events in the past. So there is nothing more honorific about a monument versus, say, memorializing soldiers who die in war versus a monument to a general. No, I think they're just all just markers uh, placed there at a point in time marking the individual. And so 
our cemeteries are filled with markers of the individuals who lived there, birth and death dates, and you know some religious iconography related to that element of their life. And also in cemeteries like Oakland Cemetery, there are additional monuments there to the uh, Confederate soldiers who were uh, buried in the in the cemetery. Your book, Democracy Restored, details both the physical restoration of the capital and the more complex story of what took place in our state government's history. Many people may be surprised to learn that in 1868, the Georgia State Legislature had African-American representatives. What happened? So in 1868, the state was under federal control, and it was moving toward readmission to the Union. And in order to do that, a new state constitution had to be created. And so there was a statewide election. At that time, of course, it was uh, male only, and representatives were elected uh, based on the male population of the state, and because the state was under federal occupation, it meant that African Americans uh, uh, could vote. And so there were 32 African Americans in the House and the Senate uh, during that constitutional convention. And during that period, were there any official policies on monuments to the Confederacy? There was an organization called the Ladies Memorial Association, and these were typical of uh, associations of women who gathered together to uh, begin to memorialize uh, the dead of the Civil War. And in the South, uh, this was taking place as it was in the North uh, because of the huge loss of life that was involved. And so there in Atlanta, the Ladies Memorial Association was involved in overseeing the exhumation of uh, soldiers who had been killed in the various battles around Atlanta and have them relocated to uh, a permanent resting place. Um, the, for the most part, they were uh, relocated to Oakland Cemetery. Mm. And so there was a big fundraising effort to create a memorial uh, at that time, and uh, one was erected in uh, Oakland Cemetery, and there was a bit of controversy over uh, that particular monument. While Black Americans served as Southern lawmakers for that brief period after the Civil War, were there efforts to create monuments to those who lost their lives in slavery or lynching? No, um, the major focus um, in those uh, conventions was in the creation of the basic rights of citizenship for uh, African Americans. And so that included the right to uh, vote and the right to serve in uh, public office, the right to you know, hold the positions of authority like sh uh, sheriff and uh, judge. And so these were basic rights in a democracy that African-Americans uh, who had been enslaved had been denied and freed African-Americans had no access to as well. And so the Constitutional Convention ratified the 13th Amendment that ended slavery, and that was a condition of readmission to the Union. And it went ahead, and then the new democracy of the post-Civil War era began with a legislative session here in Atlanta as the temporary capital having been moved from uh, Milledgeville. And that was held on the site of what's now the capital in the building that occupied that site at the time. And it was the combined Fulton County Courthouse and Atlanta City Hall. Mm. And so African-Americans were concerned not about memorialization at that point, they were concerned primarily about getting their basic rights as citizens. Far more immediate concerns. So when were Confederate monuments created? So uh, the very first one in Atlanta 
was the obelisk in Oakland Cemetery. And that was put there as a marker for those who had died. And it was part of the sorrow of loss that overwhelmingly uh, white Atlantans felt over uh, the loss of loved ones uh, in the war. And so that's that you know, first generation of monuments, uh, which were monuments of mourning. You think of time marching on, and uh, the city of Atlanta became the permanent capital, and the Capitol building was located on Marietta Street as temporary location, and that a permanent uh, capital uh, was built on its current location. When the Capitol opened in 1889, uh, the budget uh, for the capital did not include any monuments. And so it was only uh, the passage of time, the arrival of the 20th century, that monuments uh, began to be uh, placed on capital grounds. And so this uh, was the second generation of uh, Confederate memorialization. And if you think of the very first monument that was placed on the capital grounds, it was the statue of Governor and Senator uh, John Brown Gordon. And he had been a Confederate general. He had uh, been involved in Georgia in the attempt to suppress the black vote with that first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. And then had gone on to elective office in the uh, post-Reconstruction era, had served as governor uh, when the Capitol opened in 1889. And so after his death in 1904, uh, there was a major fundraising effort to erect a monument uh, in his memory. And so that monument is the one that we see today of the face of Governor Brown in his uh, older age with the scars of his Civil War battles in his Confederate uniform that he wore as a general in the 1860s and on the horse that he rode um, as a general in the Confederate Army. And so um, it was a memorial uh, that combined uh, the look of him as senator and governor, but the major import of it was his role as a Confederate officer. And uh, so it was a monument to uh, the Confederacy, which was a part of this whole lost cause memorialization of the 1890s up through the 1930s. And the May 27th, 1907 dedication of the Gordon statue was more than just the addition of another lost cause monument. It represents the precise period of the advancement of legal segregation at the beginning of the 20th century. The statue was dedicated eight months after the 1906 race riot, when white mobs rampaged through the downtown, killing African-Americans. In the aftermath, the governmental response was to pass new, new segregation laws and ordinances, and two months later, in the summer session of the 1907 General Assembly, the passage of the literacy requirement to vote in Georgia. This constitutional amendment was then used to disqualify African-Americans reducing the number of black voters in Georgia from 28% to 4% of their population. If you want to understand what the literacy requirement meant at the time, just read the Atlanta Journal editorial that hailed its passage as a victory for the white people of the state who are anxious to assert that this is a white man's country. Tim, it's hard not to think about Germany. Germany outlawed the swastika and any images related to flags from the Third Reich. How did these continue? So I think that part of it is the, in effect, the loss of memory. Uh, so if you look at the statues on the Capitol grounds, most people see them and know little or nothing about the individuals that they, you know, what they stood for. And so they almost assume an, anon an anonymous element unless somebody explains you know, what they were about. And so, I mean, that was one of the efforts that we undertook with Democracy Restored and then with the app, the Capital Tour app that we kind of followed up with. And 
one of the things I remember very vividly is that on the Capitol Commission, there were representatives from around Georgia, and one of the representatives was W.W. W. Law, who had been head of the NAACP in Savannah from 1946 to about 1986. Uh, so he was involved in the major advancement of civil rights uh, in the city of Atlanta, and he was an incredibly knowledgeable historian uh, about uh, African-American history in Georgia. And we were having a discussion of the statues on the Capitol grounds and uh, talked about, we're talking about the Richard Russell statue. And uh, Mr. Law said when he had a chance to say something, he said, Richard Russell was no friend of the black man. And Richard Russell um, is a towering figure in Georgia history because of his role on the Armed Services Committee and a major advisor in foreign affairs and played a very important role in the 1940s and uh, 50s into the uh, 1960s. And, but he uh, was an important part of the effort on the part of Southern senators at uh, killing every piece of civil rights legislation that uh, Congress attempted to uh, pass uh, throughout his career. And so this is one of the monuments on the Capitol grounds. And uh, so if we're going you know, to reckon ourselves with the Confederate legacy there, uh, there's more to it than that. And there's also the uh, statue of uh, Eugene Talmadge, um, just an incredibly staunch segregationist. And, uh, you know, he has, I, mean, I could go into detail about that as well. And so uh, the statues that are there, um, the focus is currently on the uh, statue of John Brown Gordon because of the uh, direct Confederate imagery that's uh, part of that statue. If he were there just as you know, governor, uh, he might be uh, more innocuous, but more innocuous on first glance. But when you look at his history, not so much. And uh, that's true of other statues that you find on the Capitol grounds. The Confederacy lost the Civil War. Yet the saying about losing the war but winning the peace comes to mind with regard to monuments and the enduring image of the Confederate flag, it took imagining a life without football to make people of Mississippi change the state flag recently. When is tearing down a monument more important than providing context for imagery? Well, I think that that if you look at the, in effect, if you think of the progress that the state has made, um, and that's one of the themes that we develop in uh, Democracy Restored, is that there's a constant struggle, one on the one hand, to gain essential rights, and on the other hand, to catch up in terms of presenting a full picture of the state's past. And uh, so this has involved in Georgia, our own fight over the flag of the state. And, you know, that uh, began with Sal Miller, uh, continued through Roy Barnes, um, and then concluded uh, the current flag with uh, Governor Sonny Perdue. And so, you know, we have fought that battle because the flag that we had was a the very the state flag that was uh, somewhat innocuous there were two different confederate flags one the official flag of the confederacy and then the, the confederate battle flag and so the official flag of the state of georgia was the flag of the confederacy with a uh, seal of georgia on it and um, when the Supreme Court decision ordering the desegregation of schools and Brown v. the Board of Education came about in 1954. The state of Georgia responded by modifying the state flag and adding to it 
the Confederate battle flag. So it took off two thirds of the flag and inserted the battle flag. And that was part of this whole symbolic effort to show that uh, this state was resisting the efforts at desegregation. And so changing that was a battle not of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, but one was, that was delayed uh, to, the, uh, to the 1990s and the, uh, eventually uh, 2000. And so um, we are doing the same thing now with our Confederate memorials. And that's why there's the focus um, in Decatur on the memorial that was created there at the first decade of the 20th century and in Piedmont Park. Uh, the Peace Memorial of 1915, and now the John Brown Gordon uh, statue. And so as our consensus grows about that these are not innocuous symbols, that uh, when we know what they are and what they represent, it's a version of history that uh, was advanced as a part of an effort to suppress uh, the rights of African Americans. and by leaving these monuments there, uh, they uh, remind of those efforts at repression. And so that's the uh, focus that I see currently um, that is coalescing around an effort to change these. Tim, this has been so interesting. And I look forward to our next conversations about the app you created for Democracy Restored. You were way ahead of the curve with a virtual tour, <laughs> having done this long before the pandemic. Thank you so very much. Well, you're welcome, Lois. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Tim Crimmins is Georgia State University Professor Emeritus of History. He co-authored Democracy Restored, a history of the Georgia State Capitol. He directs Following the Color Line, Atlanta Landmarks and Civil Rights, teacher workshops funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. From downtown monuments to downtown music school, just ahead on City Lights, you are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. One of the goals of Downtown Summer School is to support a thriving creative class now and in the future. The free virtual education program is open to students interested in the music business. Here to tell us more are Molly Newman and Abe Batcham. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Molly, you are the president of Song Trust, the sister company to Downtown Music Holdings. Would you give us an overview of the two companies and how they work together? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so Downtown Music Holdings is actually the parent company for Song Trust, in addition to Downtown Music Publishing, Downtown Studios, CD Baby, um, other companies like AdRev and Dashco and Fuga. We're a sort of a, a suite now of companies um, that have grown in, in various ways in the music space. Song Trust is specifically focused on music publishing administration. So I always kind of put it as we, 
we're passionate about the painful parts of publishing. We are, global music publishing administration is, is very complicated and laborious and as you know, more activity has emerged in the music rights landscape, it's become a, a, a critical piece to be focused on and, and precise with. So that's where we, we focus our energy, but we support all of the other companies in various ways. We have partnerships with um, some of the distribution companies that are in downtown. We do the administration for downtown music publishing itself. And that's sort of the snapshot of, of how we work together. What was the inspiration for creating Downtown Summer School? Well, I think the sort of opportunity emerged with you know, everything being required to go virtual this year. So in normal years, we have a very robust internship program at, at Song Trust and Downtown Music Publishing and CD Baby and other companies also have their own internship programs. When we realized we would be fully remote this summer as we have been since uh, about March 12th or 13th, I think the idea from our CEO, Justin Klifowitz, was let's try to bring together the, the great minds that we have within the company and our friends like Abe, um, who are not part of downtown, but who we very much are inspired by in the way that they're managing their businesses, and try to give access um, as best we can to interested students, people in the industry already, people who are at various stages of their career who might be interested in, in pursuing other angles, or they've always been curious about how the industry works. And just making it, you know, this information and these people available is uh, something that was not a tremendously challenging thing to do, given how virtual life has become for so many. And, you know, when we asked people within the company and, and people outside, like Abe, it was received so well and with such enthusiasm. And we're really excited about, about what it's going to be. How did downtown begin building out the platform? I think it's, 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 I'm so inspired by how easy this is. It's such a simple concept. Let's bring people together. We all know how to log into a webinar now. And let's have these conversations be available. And, you know, so putting the platform together, the summary of, of how to, you know, register um, what the program's going to look like and who's going to be there. And then sending out the invitations you know, it's it's something that was very simple to do, and I think the execution has been wonderful. Abe, you are one of the industry experts who will participate in the week-long school. Would you tell us about your company, Beat Stars, and how you got into the business? Yeah, absolutely. So, Beat Stars is a uh, music production licensing platform. Uh, where we connect music producers that are producing full compositions um, of beats and instrumentals and licensing them out to songwriters and singers and rappers to use for their commercial albums and singles or whatever audio projects that they are uh, commercially putting out. And so we empower music producers on the seller side to give them tools and technology to license and sell direct to consumer and build a licensing business outside of traditional music industry. So we provide them do-it-yourself websites, um, embeddable storefronts, you know, music distribution, and now publishing services. And we're on every major platform on iOS, Android, and on the web. And then on the songwriter side, we're empowering those folks by giving them access to very affordable music production, even though it's on a non-exclusive basis, but it gives them an entry point to start experimenting and start building a catalog for themselves that to start developing in their crafts to get their artistry to the next level to be a viable product. How did you get involved with Downtown Summer School? So I was hanging out with Justin the CEO of downtown, I don't know if it was last year or a couple of years ago, we were hanging out in, here in Austin and he was telling me about this intern program and how it's, you know, impacted so many young people's lives um, and how it's attracted like just an assortment of people from so many different backgrounds and so many different like economic statuses. And, 
and empowered them. And I, I thought it was like the coolest thing for, you know, for CEOs to really take or for a company, right? For a company itself to really take the investment in people seriously. And these are programs, you know, me as a, as a musician and someone that's been obsessed with music my whole life and I, you know, would have been all, but also obsessed with the music business as well too. So I would have been a downtown intern with no question, you know, if that was available during my time. So <laughs> that would have been amazing. Oh, for sure. I would have been an intern. That's, there's no doubt about it. And I know that the, the people at downtown, Molly, Justin, uh, Joe, just everyone that I know there, um, even on, you know, the Dashco side, on the ad rev side, on the CD baby side, you know, their values really align with mine. I love what they represent as a, as a company, especially with so many, when they're in so many different like vertical businesses that they're still making a priority to touch, influence, and really impact young people's lives. And it's just beautiful to see. And there will never be a moment where if Justin asked me to be a part of something like this, I would be all on board right away every time. That's quite a testament. Since many high school and college students were unable to participate in internship programs because of the COVID-19 pandemic. In what ways will this be a good alternative for those students interested in music industry? Yeah, I mean, I think what's so wonderful about this opportunity is it kind of just gives exposure and, and visibility to how we as a company think about ourselves and how we think about the opportunities in the current market, how new and innovative companies like BeatStars and you know companies like SongTrust that are taking the traditional parts of the business and, and trying to modernize them where possible. Companies like AdRev are, are looking at you know, new ways of making sure that all of the, the new income streams and revenue streams are, are properly considered and managed. I think what's really exciting is that it's going to be a different way for people to access this information. And then maybe they'll get, you know, some inspiration or maybe they'll go, this is not for me. <laughs> you know, and they wouldn't have necessarily invested their whole six weeks of summer in doing it. But, you know, what, what's also very compelling about this, you know, that we've been also informed by a lot of the activity, um, you know, happening right now with Black Lives Matter and, and other issues of, of equity and diversity front and center for so many businesses is that this gives access to literally anyone who wants to participate. And that is a, an opportunity that we definitely have not had in the past um, in, in such a meaningful and um, broad way. And so I think in the, in the future, what we're going to be, you know, aiming to maintain when things are more in person again are, you know, how can we continue to give this much access so broadly um, into so many different communities and on a global level? Um, you know, I think this might be the start of something different for us as a company, too, which is, you know, one of the things we always, this, as, as hard as this time has been for so many people and so painful, there are things that we're all doing with a fresh take that I think we all don't want to lose out for the future. You and A both gave us an idea of topics that will be covered. Are there any others that you wanted to include? One of the things that I think is interesting in the program is there's a, a panel on people who came from outside music who are, you know, and how they are now applying those skills um, in, a, in a really meaningful and critical way to the way we run our companies. I'm hoping that that might be an angle of inspiration for some people who maybe are in a different stage of their career versus the students, the people who might be joining because they're like, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, know about music. I've been in a different space. Um, and, you know, maybe there is a, a way that I can apply my skills um, to an industry or an area of the world that, that I'm really passionate about. Have you had any success stories, any interns from years past whom you'd like to tout? Not sort of an individual specific way, because I'm, I'm sure I'd be, you know, woefully overlooking someone. But we have had a great percentage of people who have been hired 
within the company after our internship program. And, and we're, you know, always very proud of that. And, you know, in my career, I've been in the music business for about 25 plus years now. And so I've come from the sort of have hired interns throughout that range of my career and seen people go on to incredible success at different companies and you know now that they're like in senior roles and I can always say I I had them as an intern when they were 18 or just out of high school and it's you know something that I have immense pride about. Teaching students and anyone who wants to participate about the music industry in one week seems ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Will there be opportunities for students to network with industry experts after the summer school ends? I expect that that will be a very big part of, of how we maintain the connection afterward. There will be, you know, less programmatic efforts, but, you know, different ways to, to maintain the connection and maintain that access. You know, I think that those are, are not yet sorted or, or quite announced, but certainly that will be a big goal. Molly Newman is the president of Song Trust, a downtown music holdings company. We also heard from Abe Batchen, the founder and CEO of Beat Stars, the downtown summer school virtual week-long program begins Monday, July 27th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Mention jazz, and cello is not the first instrument that comes to mind, unless you are Shauna Tucker. The cellist singer-songwriter has created her own style of music called chamber soul. She joins us now via Zoom. Shauna Tucker, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be returning. City Lights is fun, even on Zoom. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we got to have the treat of an in-studio performance with you last time. We look forward to that again one day when our building reopens. For now, you will be performing at Elm Street Cultural Arts Village in Woodstock this Saturday. This is part of their Lantern series, Outdoors. How much, if at all, have you performed during the pandemic? Well, this will be my first live performance since February. So that in and of itself is something to be excited about, albeit with a little bit of trepidation because you know we look in the news and it changes on a at breakneck speed. The, the, the awareness of of how transmission is everything just like puts this one big question mark on the levels of safety and i know that elm street is probably about as safe as as i as they can be certainly and i'm i'm excited to be there i'm excited i haven't been this excited to be out in an outdoor concert in july (laughs) in the south in like I don't think I've ever been this excited to be to to perform outside in July <laughs> as I am for this concert. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how our expectations have changed, our demands since the pandemic were grateful for things we would never have thought about before, like heat and humidity. We're grateful for that. Oh my goodness. Well, well, just to be I've, outside with people again um, and to have the interaction of being able to see people's faces and to and to see to get a gauge of how much they're enjoying what's happening is a very different process from what I've been doing since March, which is primarily online live streaming. And, you know, there's a big difference between seeing someone's like physical reaction 
um, in an audience versus reading it on in the comment thread <laughs> on a live stream, you know? Indeed, and this is the cruel reality for musicians and actors and dancers, for live performance artists. You need an audience to complete your role, to complete your experience. Will you be singing as well as playing? Absolutely. That's my thing. <laughs> oh, I know, but I didn't know with the mask, if you know how that would work. If... Well, what we're doing, and I've, I've actually always traveled with my own microphones from a clarity standpoint and also from a sanitation standpoint. The proximity that I am mouth to microphone is always close. And I just, I've kind of always had a thing about that. So my equipment will be my own. And it's funny in building a stage platter, just being on stage with um, with my quartet, I never really thought about distance from each other before social distancing was a thing. But we're pretty much at least six feet from one another, even before it was a, a requirement, a safety requirement. I'm not going to be singing with a mask on, and I need to speak with my ensemble on on their comfort levels of um, performing with masks on, but we will all certainly be six feet apart from each other and from anyone else that's on stage and at least six feet from the audience. Oh, I would imagine considerably more. And it sounds like you were way ahead of the curve with your attention to health and safety regarding just (laughs) germs and your microphones and all that good stuff. It started out, this is going to, I don't know, this always is funny for me to, to say it out loud, but this is the absolute truth that I just don't like my microphone to smell like breath. <laughs> I don't want to smell other people's breath on my microphone, so I just bring my own. So that really, maybe that's not as, I guess that is a sanitation thing, but <laughs> it's just distracting. <laughs> Shauna. Chamber's Soul is the name of the genre you created. You created the name as well. How would you describe the sound or the influences? Well, the sound is primarily acoustic and just acoustic instruments is what I mean to say. Like, usually I always want to start from a level of, and this is interesting to say in a time of social distancing, no matter how far apart we have to be and no matter how big the space is, I always want there to feel and sound like there is a closeness and an intimacy. And so the acoustic side of things comes into play when the sound just like makes you want to lean in. I don't know how, I don't know how to say, how to say it in a way that makes sense, makes sense to you. I've been trying now for days and yet I still can't get through. No, 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 no. There was once a time, there was once a time when I, once upon a time when I could bet anything on your kiss. Now everything you try boils down to this. You'll get back, there's no getting back. No get back, there's no getting back. Not because you can't hear, but because it just feels close. Chamber music to me, even though I'm not a classical player, I, I was classically trained, but I don't play classically anymore. But the chamber music side of chamber soul is all about the communication between players and the way that we translate a particular melody that starts on cello or in uh, on voice, and then maybe the piano will pick it up in his solo, or I start with a bass line, and then the bass player comes in with the same one and then expands that. And even with the drums, you know, drums can be a melodic instrument, even though we think about it 
primarily is rhythm, but it's all about that conversation that happens between players. And then the soulfulness is just where it starts from soul to soul. I, and my intention is for, for it to go from my soul to your soul. NPR interviewed you several years ago about your debut CD, Shine, and that led to an invitation from Cirque du Soleil to join the company as cellist vocalist for their show, K, in Las Vegas. You ended up working there for five years. Yeah. What was your takeaway from that gig? (laughs) There were many takeaways. I think the biggest takeaway for me was during my time uh, with Cirque du Soleil and and specifically working on the show Ka, it was an eye-opening experience in, in seeing A, that the caliber of talent and artistry at its highest level my assumption going into it was, you know, yes, I'm a cellist and I sing, but like, you know, my broader title and role in, in life is that I'm a musician. And somewhere along the line in my life, I, I was either taught or asked or told that I needed to choose between musician life and anything else, anything else. And when I got to Cirque du Soleil, I'm in the company of, you know, acrobats, who are also amazing pastry chefs, like they could do that, or clowns who were dancing with major dance companies and, you know, or, you know, their choreographers and their visual artists. There's a lot of and, and, and in creativity. There was not a lot of the self-criticism that we seem to default to when we, when we don't do something immediately fantastically out the gate. We're like, oh, I, I can't draw. Oh, I can't sing. There was none of that. It's just like, your most creative self you can be, you are at all times, and you don't have to choose when that manifests. That is something that I'll take with me for the rest of my life. Sounds like a very rich experience. Yeah, yeah. Your new project is called Women's Work. Can you tell us more about that? Women's Work, it's a continuous work in progress between friends who happen to be women in the music industry. Whenever we can find time between our respective projects, we get together. I mean, you know, now who's getting together physically, but, and we perform. Steph Johnson is on the West Coast. Shirazette Tinnen is uh, in Brooklyn, New York. I'm down in North Carolina. And we fold into the process guest collaborators. The three of us are the core. And yeah, we just decide what we're going to do based on how we feel. Before your concert at Elm Street, there will be a pre-performance dialogue. What will be some of the topics you will discuss? Uh, Yes, so the broad topic is art, culture, and race. And I'm really happy that we can be in this space of discussion format, because I think just in, in this space in time where, you know, we're, we're dealing with pandemic, which has caused everyone to have to slow down, shift and like, you know, settle into a, a space where the focus on current events and current topics is a lot more focused. <laughs> it sheds light on us being able to have courageous conversations about the other very, for some reason, the word tender is coming to my mind. And it's probably because there's a lot of vulnerability that is necessary in having courageous conversations about race and how that plays into our communities, um, into culture, and then specifically as a musician, how that plays into the art that I make, the art that my ensemble makes, the art that is presented at Elm Street. Elm Street has invited their community in for a free discussion um, that's going to happen. It's not just before the performance. There's going to be enough space for us to, to have the conversation, take a break. Elm Street would, would need to set up and, you know, and start the doors open process for the, for the concert. But we're going to just take a, a closer look and have some conversations. I know for me, talking about being a Black woman band leader and what that feels like, representation, playing a classical instrument, and not 
having seen myself on stage until I was well into college and the value of representation and, and how if you see yourself often that you can better visualize yourself being on that stage and being in places and spaces of success. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation and my ensemble uh, will be joining me too. Cellist, singer, songwriter, Shauna Tucker. She'll perform at Elm Street Cultural Arts Village this Saturday evening at 7.30, part of Elm Street's Lantern Series. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about workers' safety as the Georgia film industry resumes production. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Engineer Kevin Brinker produced the segment on historic monuments. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and shows from the City Lights archives on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. And if you want to subscribe to our podcast, it's available for free download on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other platforms. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.